This is Shaco Art Speak. Happy 2020 is Shaco Art Speak. I'm Ryan Letario with Gareth Blackwell. I won't call him Snack Smell today because it's 2020 <laughs> and um, we're going to try to find him a new name. A new name for 2020. A new name for 2020. <laughs> <laughs> 2020 is going to be for Shaco Art Speak the quest for a new nickname for Gareth uh, because uh, we love him so much. I like to give him nicknames. Um, yeah, so send your suggestions in. Yeah, you know? send your send your suggestions in if you want to create memes or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, this keeps getting emojis. Better, better. If you if anybody out there <laughs> feels like they can create a Doctor Smack sm- Snack Smell uh, emoji, um, <laughs> let's I, do it. I'd love that. Game on, everybody. Yeah, I'd love to use that while texting Gareth at night. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Be great. Um, but all seriousness. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. It's 2020. We're we're a year in. We're was it February? We'll be a year into our our podcast. Yeah, we're almost there, um, and it's flown by a lot faster <sighs> than I thought it would. Really fast. Yeah, kind of dizzying pace. I mean, I think it's been a winding, a bit of a winding road, um, and uh, a, it's like a winding road, and yet uh, I feel like there's a lot of just a lot of lot to cover, a lot to talk about. Oh yeah, there's a there's a ton left to talk about. Um, Star is, Wars, for instance. Yes, um, as many times as possible, right? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. we're gonna have to do a separate podcast episode on Star Wars. Yeah, can, so can we do like a nerdy break on and talk about a movie maybe someday? Yeah, I think that'd okay. be great. Um, so in advance, either apologies or congratulations for that episode, yep. depending on where you land in yep. the audience. That's right. Yeah, well, what do we? Uh, we've got. Uh, some great things on the horizon in terms of new topics we're going to be t- covering this year um, moving forward. But what do we have on the table for today, Ryan? We want to go a little, I, you know, I was thinking, I've just, well, I've tried to get back into my studio. You know, we're so busy and this was the most sort of busy, prolific kind of combination here for myself personally and my family and, and just our, you know, Shaco art space. And I'm assuming... The same for you since you're a <laughs> oh, yeah. hotly a part of that. Yes. Um, so, you know, I tried to get into my studio. I had this, you know, these dreams of getting into my studio uh, over the break, over uh, Christmas, winter break, uh, you know, time off from VCU and from school. And uh, that didn't happen as well as I wanted it to, mm. you know. So I, so I was thinking about studios, the studio practice, and, and just imagining that there is a wide range of listeners out there that are either in a incredible season in their studio or trying to get in their studio or, and it's got me thinking about the nature of studio practice. And, um, I'm sure there's gotta be some big differences between what that looks like for you and I. And, uh, you know, we talk so much big picture about the ecosystem and, and the multifaceted kind of like nuanceful matrix of, uh, what we do in art and design and, and what we're pushing for, you know, uh, in all that we do that sometimes you, you kind of lose sight of some of the more core spaces you occupy or, or that, uh, you originate out of. And so, um, yeah, I think talking about studio practice and some of the, I don't know, maybe some of the stuff that, um, is exciting about being in the studio, but also some of the difficulties and, um, and even I was thinking about some of my, my inspirations, like, actually real people studios that gave me a vision for what my studio could be. Oh yeah. Um, and how I didn't have a vision when I didn't have that. Like I actually had to see it, you know? So no, that's very real. Yeah. That's yeah. a, that's a thought. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the more we've talked over the last years, um, it's, uh, you know, we have agreement on a lot of things Mm -hmm. we see, um, we see art and design very expansive. So it's, uh, we're, we don't become as, uh, dogmatic about some things as, uh, maybe a different painter and designer might, if they're having these conversations. Um, but one thing that has become very clear the last few years um, is that we do have areas that are very different um, in terms of how we conceive of our spaces or why they're there or how the work is happening just because of the differences that are there in art and design. Yep. So I know, um, you know, we had an episode last year where you were talking, we were talking with Carrie Kite, uh, right. the writer and director about um, story Mm-hmm. And uh, what it looks like to work with clients, and and you said, well, you know, I'm I'm a completely different place because I never make work with a specific person in mind. Yeah. Um, whereas a designer, most of my work, yeah. if not all of it, That's is right. very much that way. Yeah. So studio practice, you know, for me, probably looks a lot different, right, than it does for you, and it probably looks a lot different for a lot of designers. Yep. Um, and I know that. You know, with me, one of the things that I always have a little bit of, uh, I don't know if it's uh, like like jealousy or desire towards um, when I hear, you know, painters and sculptors and uh, other um, artists in, in those veins kind of speak is making work that you just want to make, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know that, that comes with its own difficulties, but one of the things in terms of studio practice uh, as a designer that I find kind of hard is the pace is like frenetic. And mm-hmm. then apathetic. Mm-hmm. So if you've got some client work, you know, it might be really high paced. You're doing a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You're on deadline. You're doing some stuff. But then if that, that client work kind of slows down, well, then what does your studio practice really look like? Mm-hmm. You know, it's harder to have that day to day if you don't have that client really knocking on the door saying, mm-hmm. where's this thing? Where's mm-hmm. that thing? Um, you know, what's next? Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, if, I think for me, because of the choices I've made, I, I, uh, you know, like a lot of people, you 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 learn through. I suppose there's a a decent percentage of people that go to graduate school and get a real encounter with a studio that way, mm, because yeah. it's maybe one of the factors sort of tied into going to school is is uh, maybe an undergraduate there is no studio, or you know, and then and so you're you're in studio classes, let's say, you know, where you're you're learning in an environment with easels or you're painting on the wall or whatever it is, but, um, actually having your own space to find where you come in strictly to work. And, uh, sometimes you don't get a taste of that until you go to a decent graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of folks, I think that's, I I don't know. I know that, you know, um, that wasn't entirely the case for me. I got a studio and undergraduate as a barter with the school, like to be a woodshop tech. Like, I mean, I just had, I was in a smaller school at the time. And so, um, but it still was this, it still was similar. It's like, that's the way that I got a vision for a studio. And then it was being invited to studios by uh, faculty and mentors. So seeing their studios and operations started to give me pictures of how to envision my studio practice. But the thing was, I think if I look back at grad school, I had this tenacity towards painting, but I also was trying on being a studio artist for size. So some of what I was doing was galvanized by trying the whole, the whole thing on. I didn't really know if I wanted to do it and that was motivating doing it, if that makes sense. And so, um, and so now, you know, so two master's degrees later, 
I spent a ton of time in the studio. I mean, I would spend all my time in the studio. Now I have this great studio and I, I spend strategic time. So it's a totally different sensibility and feeling because I'm not just in there, you know, not showering and <laughs> yeah, it's like 24 seven bedhead and, um, grinding away, listening to lectures and, and reading books and painting. Like, um, so I had this immersive cluster of time and then it, you know, then it, it's been, it's been interesting. Like I I've had to, um, find a new motivation over the years, you know? Um, cause I, I'm not dealing with clients. Uh, I do have, um, an audience in mind, mm-hmm. but that audience isn't necessarily knocking on my door saying, will you make this? Yeah. Not at all. You know, in fact, the audience may, may be off target. Like I may not, it may not land with anybody. And, and so there is that, um, that are, there is something about the, the work, uh, and the, um, work practice making, um, making sort of needs to begat more making, I guess. And there's something about that rhythm that, um, is probably more keyed up for me in my understanding of a studio practice. Yeah. I think, you know, the one thing I can kind of, um, I think kind of go into when you talk about that is when I was doing my master's work, I was working with a faculty member who um, had a very lucrative uh, consulting business Mm -hmm. and he consulted uh, media companies all over the world. Mm -hmm. And um, his sweet spot was helping companies launch new magazines. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know how many times um, I was tasked with being an art director or creative director of a first issue of a magazine. And so we would go through and we'd make that. And with that, you have a general idea of your audience, Mm -hmm. but you know, you, it's not like you're making a a 150th issue of something that's already come out where you know what people want and what they're asking for. So you are kind of doing the best you can. And I would say those probably were the most enjoyable studio experiences for me. If, if I can put that term on it. Um, yeah, because yeah, it was yeah. a, you know, and, and another thing is, um, you know, as a, as a painter, I don't know how often, you know, you've worked in your studio, um, with a team almost, you know, yeah. but I would assume that virtually never, <laughs> I was going to say, I assume that um, a team of me, the team, uh, the team aspect of it probably is more heavily on my side of the table. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and it was actually really fun. We had, um, a group of about, depending on the, the title we were working on three to five folks, we're pretty consistent with this and it was mm-hmm. nice to have that kind of collaborative studio practice. Yeah. They shoved us in the, you know, the crappiest office yep. in the building and uh, we were the farthest away from everybody because we were always the loudest yep. um, doing our work. And, um, you know, we just made magazine after magazine after magazine and turned these things out. Um, and it, it was fantastic. But I think, you know, looking back on it, it, it really didn't, what you said a minute ago kind of made a lot of it make sense. Um, it was kind of searching, like, is this really what I want to be doing? Yeah. Is this how I want to do it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, my studio practice doesn't look a lot like that anymore, but mm-hmm. I do find myself kind of desiring more of that collaboration, more of that teamwork, mm-hmm. more of that stuff that's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the, yeah, that's the interesting thing is um, for me, because through Shock Art Space, there's a great deal of collaboration. Um it's clarified and sobered up 
the prospects of my studio practice in the specific sense of, of, of making, uh, what, you know, whether it be painting or something close to it. And so, um, that has its proportional place in my life. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder what it would like it, what it would look like if I was just putting everything I put into this, uh, plus teaching a VCU, if I was just painting, I mean, it would just be a very different world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, probably make very different work in many ways, but, um, in the situation, in the situation that I'm in, uh, I, I do have the thing that I'm thankful for, I guess, is that there is a clear desire. So I'm not trying it on anymore. Yeah. And, and that's a very different space that I guess that I'm working in. And it, it's taken a lot to get there. So in some ways, it's kind of surprising um, that I'm in a space where I recognize it. Like I can go into my studio and sometimes it's just to read or, or do work or I've been building a terrible panel um, that's just full of problems. Like because I'm a little rusty with my things that I, you know, normally can do, uh, just fine. Um, and so you're, you, you enter back in and there's nobody there and you screw up. Nobody knows you're screwing up. And, uh, till now. And, uh, then you're like, is it worth fixing this problem or not? This is weird. But, um, but I think it matters. I think I, I, you know, I'm, I'm also, it's like, I'm relieved making mistakes in my studio. It's like, it's like a relief. It's like, okay. This is a place now in my life where mistakes aren't magnified uh, the way they are in every other aspect of my life. Mm, and yeah. so um, the space that my studio has become for me is, is markedly different and no one's telling me to do it. And so, and I'm not trying it on anymore. So I'm determining to do it. And uh, you can't know that until you do, if you do, you know? So in some ways it's mysterious to me. Um, in other ways, it's like a relief. It's like so many years into this, you know, and I, I think that's something I, I felt like I wanted to get into a little bit, but there's a process to get there that includes a, a lot of other people. But where it stands right now is um, it's a lot less emotional, mm. you know? Like I was wondering today driving here, I was like, do I just, am I just like so emotionally monotone that at this point in my life where there's something wrong, <laughs> there's something wrong. <laughs> like I, I, I have contentment, I guess. I go in there and I'm like, all right, I'm going to make this painting. At some point, I'm going to make this painting. Yeah. And I have finished work that no one's seen that just sits there. And uh, you get used to it. You get used to, you know, not living in the rat race. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think the same thing. Uh, if I look at, uh, like, if 22-year-old if me mm-hmm. could just sit down and have coffee with me one day, um, I think 22-year-old me would probably lecture me a lot on some things mm-hmm. and say, you know, why are you, you're, you know, you're working with these, these clients and you're, you're not really, you're, are you phoning the work in with this? Mm-hmm. You know, are, you're not really chasing this thing. Why aren't you in this place and doing this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think after 22 year old me had their say, mm-hmm. the current me would just look at him and be like, Hey, just calm down. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a long journey, Yep. you know? And yeah, at 22, I had completely different ideas of what, what it might look like for me to be doing a studio practice. Yeah. Um, you know, I had, I had a complete mindset of the, the place I was going to live and what kind of place I would live yeah. in and what my life would be like. Um, but almost nothing coming out of 22-year-old me's mouth would, I think, have anything to do with the actual work. Right. It would have a lot more to do with the stuff that surrounds it. Yeah. You know, so it would be about the, 
the notoriety. Yeah. Or the geography. Yeah. Or whatever else. Yeah, um, definitely. I definitely thought, I think geography was a thing. And Oh, yeah. Um, and and, and, yeah, and I, I hear that a lot. You know, I'm sure you do, you know, from your students as well and from other folks, you know, like, oh, I have to go here to make it. I have to do this, that, or the other. Um, which isn't the case anymore. Yeah. You know, but also leaving that whole conversation aside is not really the conversation of studio practice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah you, can, you can go to New York or LA or sure. Chicago or Seattle or, or wherever. There's great artists and in still Montana. not do the work. That's right. You can be, you can be in the middle of nowhere. You can be, I mean, you know, there's plenty of artists that go to uh, residencies that uh, uh, Skowhegan or something or McDowell or some, somewhere mm-hmm. where you're maybe slightly set apart from. I was just talking to Will Conley and he's looking at a residency. It's like in Zurich. Yeah. And uh, it's a no technology residency. Dang. So you're completely off the grid for 30 days. That's amazing. In a studio in the wild. Um, you know, so that historic retreat to the wild retreat from removal, like a reprieve from it's a timeout from the, the dynamism of, of, uh, your state of affairs, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the pain bills, you know, all the things that go with it, the, you know, locomotion, like whatever it is, like everything that, that is happening before your eyes. And it seems like as you kind of mature through things that, I mean, even when you're younger, I mean, there's plenty of great artists that, you know, at 20 years old, recognize the value of that. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's an old person thing. Um, yeah. but it is a, it's a thing though, you know? Um, and, uh, I've had my suspicions of it in the past and then, and then, you know, I mean, I happen to be cycling through a time where I'm like, I get it. I get, I get tuning out. I get, um, sometimes it's nice for someone else to do that for you mm-hmm. to create that space that you can come to. And, uh, you know, it, it sometimes it's difficult. We don't have the means to afford to make those those spaces. You know, yeah. like, um, you know, my studio's at my house. Um, uh, it was difficult to find a studio in the city, um, and uh, economy of time. You know, sometimes if you have a studio too far away from your job and where you live, it's unless you're working full time as an artist, it's difficult to uh, afford it. Yeah, whether it's time or money or both. You know, for me, it's like. I got so much going on. It's got to be kind of at my house so I can run out the door real quick, mm-hmm. but come in if I need to or leave to work or whatever, you know, get down here. So um, I know that there's a lot of circumstances around establishing what a studio is um, as a fine artist. Uh, maybe that's different for a designer. I don't know. Maybe a designer can actually work out of a, and I don't mean this isn't demeaning, but like maybe I can envision being able to work out of a backpack and, and actually it would be modular in a way that um, I think a lot of urban environments look to accommodate uh, based on our, the tools of technology and so on. Um, but, you know, in Europe, and this is not a better or worse, just difference, you know, being a painter uh, at this point is like uh, the setup and all that stuff um, takes time and it's messy. <laughs> It's oh, like yeah. going to the gym. The reason why I don't go to the gym is I don't want to take a shower afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I don't, I don't, it's the same with being an artist. Like I don't, I don't want to go somewhere, have to take a shower at my studio. And then, you know, I'd rather just live where, where I, where I paint mm-hmm. if I can, if you can afford to, you know? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, I know, you know, time's going into your studio. Like I just kind of uh, look around at all of the, um, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a, bad way at all but i look at the the props of your work right mm-hmm. so your uh your cans of paint and your your panels in progress and the things that you've built uh to hold the materials and the tools that you use and everything else and then i 
you know, usually I'm walking into your studio for us to have like some sort of planning session or something. And then I pull like my one tool out of my backpack and open <laughs> it up and the screen lights up, uh-huh. um, you know, which, you know, is, is a severe minimization of, of like the trade of graphic design. That's not the only tool we use, but no doubt. Um, but to your point, exactly. I think um, it is something that's very kind of simple to do. Um, I don't have a lot of friends that are designers that talk about having a studio. Yeah. You know, most of them, it is the kitchen table and that's not a knock at all. That's no, a very no. definite thing. I think thing. that's an advancement in the, in technology and the use of tools like that. Yeah. And so you, I mean, you're, it's, it's not a hindrance to creativity. And so I don't think you're, I don't think you're seeing a lack of creativity when it comes to design. Now, if you get into fabrication, depends oh, yeah. on what we're talking about, right? right, right. As far as design, design very broadly speaking, but, um, but still, there's a lot of mo- there's a lot you can do from a desktop now. Um, oh yeah, I mean I've had times where I've been <clears throat> either doing research um, or a few times when I've just been visiting different cities and gotten off the train, had a text message or an email from a client about something to fix. I popped into a Starbucks, opened up my laptop, sent them off a change in about ten minutes, and then went about the rest of my day mm-hmm. with the other stuff I was doing. Not yeah, a problem. That's right. I didn't have to say. You know, I'm out of town. Give me four days to get home, and then I'll get back to you about that. Right. I have to deal with it. And likewise, I've got a good buddy who lives out in L.A., works for a, a fantastic studio called Blind, and he's. Uh, we've talked a lot about what it looks like for their their studio to to kind of do their work because they're a large studio with big name clients, do a lot of motion graphics and things like that. And so they'll they'll go into something like uh, Dribble or Behance, and they'll find somebody local that mm-hmm. they like their work. And they'll say, hey, we'll give you a day rate. Mm-hmm. That person just brings their laptop in, sits down at a desk, does a day's worth of work, takes a check home, and they're good wow. to go, right? And wow. they're doing a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of, a lot of ideation uh, work for them in the early initial stages of, of concepting for client work. Um, you know, and that's something that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, they're on the go, they're portable, they're there. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I could never imagine that for a painter. Right. You know, like right. what would that, that, that boggle my mind to even think about what it looks like yeah. for a painter on the go that was actually legitimate. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Like I had, I had, um, kind of an answer to that, I guess was when I was an undergraduate at CSU Sacramento, um, a couple of grad students had dropped the ball in preparation for Judy Pfaff, who was coming to be a one month resident. And so they had, there had been this creation of a studio, like a legitimate studio for this person. And Judy Pfaff is, uh, significant, uh, to say the least. I mean, just, uh, incredible maker influencer. I mean, I think has to be talked about as, um, the catalyst in, in, um, cast a large shadow on the whole manner of installation and it just, just impacted so many people, you know, painting, drawing, printmaking, sculpting, but install installation art, just a virtuoso, um, really one of a kind. And, uh, so, you know, this is early. This is like 2002 or three, mm. somewhere in there. And um, so the grad students dropped the ball in preparing, and I was kind of an overachieving undergraduate student. So Linda Day was like, we need someone to be Judy's studio assistant. And uh, she gave me like four books to read and said, read these by the end of the week, and uh, we'd like you to do it. <laughs> so... I actually didn't know who Judy Pfaff was, so I was like, okay. Um, and then I started reading the books, and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I want to get myself I into. I am not the person. You didn't. So, um, you know, 
it's obviously an honor. I did. I was so ignorant, so green. I didn't know anything. So I didn't know what I didn't know. So here, here comes Judy. And, uh, she wasn't always transparent. Like she didn't always let me into her studio. Um, like literally. Yeah. So <laughs> I was ready to get coffee for or whatever. I'm ready to learn. I'm trying to. And then, uh, these briefcases would show up in these suitcases. Right. And then, uh, she, then she wasn't there. And so, um, and then there had to be like a studio day opening. And so then, um, <laughs> all of a sudden there's all this work in her studio. And I was like, everyone was like, she hasn't necessarily been here as much as we hoped. And uh, I hadn't seen her very much. Um, and, uh, but there's like a crap ton of work that she's made. Yeah. I just put my fingers. I did a, I did a okay. Boomer quotation finger. <laughs> um, so, uh, she was like, had made these paper pieces that she carried in, uh, briefcases and in, uh, they're densely layered, transparent, really complex. Like there's some recent work that can give you a clue, but, uh, and she was like unpacking this stuff and ironing it and then like continuing to work on it. So they were like works that she had been working on that traveled with her that she could unpack out of her, um, (laughs) out of her, uh, uh, suitcases and so on. And, uh, I mean, it, it was incredible. Like the amount of work that was in there. And then, you know, so she had suitcases that had like stuff that was cut mm-hmm. that was ready. To, it was like material it was raw material. Then she had some that were, it was work that she was working on. And, uh, it was a really brilliant solution to travel into, you know, working on the spot. No, that makes I, sense. I didn't have a category to fully appreciate at the time. I was suspicious, but you know, with time I'm like, Oh gosh, I get it. That's genius. I mean, it's just a brilliant way of, of, um, you know, literally finding a material way of scaling down and scaling up, but maintaining a kind of translucency, uh, material tactility, um, the ability to get messy in the studio and, and really go after the intentions that she had for the work and, and the scalability, you know, so the idea that you can unfold, uh, you know, it's like uh, origami. It's like origami down this piece of paper that ends up being 10 by 15 feet and looks like this monumental work of art. And it is, but also can travel in a purse. It's fantastic. You know, like um, that that's the kind of stuff that I had to, that I had to see. And uh, in some ways, that's the closest thing to me to like opening up a MacBook. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know what I mean? Really, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just that it literally, ex- it's externalized and it like goes on the wall and it can it can really really change the filling of a space, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that I don't even that's a little tangential. But that was a that was actually a, you know uh, I guess the other reason why I bring it up is to say that um, that was I helped build that studio. Mm-hmm. We you know sheetrock the walls the whole nine. So from the ground up, that was one of my first encounters with a studio, mm-hmm. and and uh, it helped immediately. You know, because it looked like I was building a gallery for a minute and then you start situating some things and you're like, oh, OK, you know, this is this is actually a studio. And then I and then, I, you know, just to kind of carry it forward, then I got because of that, then I was um, hired on to be uh, one of our senior faculty there, Joan Moment, studio assistant. And she had built this in her husband. They built this incredible studio in their backyard, which definitely inspired, had some inspiration on on my studio. And so I prepare our canvases. And she had to work on all the walls, tables in the center, a second story in the back where there was like storage, highly organized storage for all the, the finished work throughout the decades. Mm-hmm. 
and a sink, a bathroom. I mean, it was really put together. It was also stationed to deal with the natural light. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so um, thought through for their practice and anticipatory of the kind of work they may make in the future. Um, and to live in that space, working in there for a time um, on a day in and day out way or basis uh, was helpful to see what moved and see what didn't. Um, to see how often they clean their brushes, uh, where they line paper. I mean, things you just don't think about, like um, the organization. I was a terribly organized person, still still have a hard time with organization. And uh, I tend to just be a maximalist mess maker uh, when I'm in the throes of being creative. And uh, to see people like that exercise control and constraint where they didn't completely eviscerate that aspect of their making, but they also also understood the importance of organization. I mean, um, unless artists let you into their studio and they've been working for a while, like it's hard to envision that. Like, I don't know that I could have envisioned that uh, for myself, you know? Yeah. I think something that, um, talking about their studio, makes me think, um, especially if you're talking about organization, um, there's a video I saw where, where Aaron Draplin was doing a tour of his studio and he was showing folks and it, you know, it's amazing because if you've, if you've seen Aaron Draplin's work, it really does evoke this, um, kind of, um, pre or early digital, um, sort of sensibility coming out of the, you know, the late sixties, the seventies, the eighties. Um, and so a lot of that comes, uh, out of these, uh, references to pop culture, but also, uh, manufactured culture. So in his studio, it's fantastic. There's uh, what seemed to me just to be, you know, stacks and stacks and stacks of things like, you know, shelves and lockers and stuff like that, that were immaculately organized. And so if right. he was, if he was going to be doing a project for a company and let's say it was a, you know, a new, a new beer company. Well, he had a, a whole set of drawers he could go to that might have things like, like bottle caps and openers and things like that. Right. And, he can just go through them and like it, they become his like reference files. And I think about that because I think that there's something, um, I can speak directly for d- most of the designers I know. There's something with designers where we like to collect the, the tangible things, the mm-hmm. neat stuff. Yep. And so we have these odd, weird collections of things. Yeah. And right now mine are in different boxes in the attic. Yeah. That's- and so they don't really serve the purpose that they're actually collected for right now. They just kind of, are added weight into my house. Right. Um, but there's something really fantastic about the ability to kind of go through that, um, which I think is one of the things that can be lost in a studio practice that's only your laptop um, because you don't have kind of the the visual files. You don't have the things around you. Um, the stuff that's just kind of, kind of urging your work on, you know, and right. sometimes that can mean that if you're only on your laptop, you're only traveling, Maybe you're drawing from the same sort of the well. The well is the same every time. Yeah. Um, where you're not getting as much kind of environmental influence because yeah. you're not really grounded in a space. Yeah. Aaron, his his persona is truck driverish. Like, oh yeah. I, I wonder if that's like an anti. Oh man, I don't even know how to talk about that. There's some kind of like subtle resistance to like a, a almost. So you know, I love the I love minimalist stuff. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. whether I can fully live and embrace it myself, I, I have a affinity there. There's almost a, <laughs> there's almost a removal of, there's a, 
there's a decluttering to the point of depersonalizing. Yeah. And I, and, and he, he looks like a reaction in the opposite direction in many ways. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he, uh, his story is fantastic because he'll talk about how, you know, he's like a kid from the Midwest, like blue collar family. Um, and when he got started, he started, he just loved like, you know, snowboarding and stuff like that and skateboarding and went with some friends out to the West coast and they made a magazine Yep, and did this stuff and uh, started doing things. And he really loved, you know, kind of the ephemera. So there was, you know, buttons, stickers, patches, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, just that makes super sense. legit. Yeah. And so a lot of the sensibilities <clears throat> and the things that come out of like uh, how the design needed to be to maximize its ability to work within a certain production standard. Yeah. You know, so if machines could only do a certain amount of stuff, you know, you minimize for purpose, mm-hmm. not just for, you know, aesthetics. Right. And so, um, you know, a lot of it comes out of that, but it also, I mean, you see it in, um, you know, early American advertising and things like that. You see yeah. a lot of those things. And that's the stuff that he has collected and right. organized and right. in his studio. Yeah. Sometimes I think, too, like uh, I've known people and know people now where they're intuitively so good that it's uh, they don't even have to they don't have to think too hard at all about what they're doing. Yeah. They just their instincts are so off the charts their sensibilities are so hooked, dialed into, it's like their sensibilities are dialed into their intentions so well that their output is, they just make stuff. You know, it's like, I know painters like that. You're never going to get a deep discussion with them verbally. And, uh, but you'll get a deep discussion with them visually. Like if you just look at their work, it's there, but they may not say anything that that'll make you as like, you know, you see something in the work and then you look for a confirmation in the person and the, the person is like, I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> and I used to struggle with that. I used to be like, you're supposed to know. I don't, you know, I don't think that as much anymore. I'm far more, I think, sympathetic and uh, trusting of what um, someone makes. Like I, you know, I've constantly been confounded by mu- musician friends that I've had that, that are quiet. Yeah. And, uh, or almost seem belligerent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they make this deeply nuanced, beautiful, agonizing music, and you're like, "How does that happen? Like, yeah. how do you, how are you this all the time? You know?" And it's just uh, tangential, I guess. I'm I'm, I'm derailing well, a little bit, but it's interesting. I don't you know? I don't know. If it is that tangential because I think about. Um, I mean, you're saying that, and then I'm thinking, like, you know, is there a difference between like the me on a podcast and the me in my studio? And I yeah. think that there is something different there, right? Because if you start getting into the actual work and the practice, I think that there is something that there's a there's a different kind of activity that's happening, mm-hmm. you know. And and maybe you know you're you're very introspective and quiet, and that carries over outside of your uh, studio. And right. Maybe you're only like that in your studio, or vice versa, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think there is like uh, it's it's a different kind of, of action and motion. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about it, you know, in the same way that, you know, you and I both grew up playing sports. So you, you talk about like, you know, muscle memory and repetitive yeah. things and things where your body just kind of yeah. goes into the autopilot because mm-hmm. you've done it so much. I think there's a muscle memory within some studio practice as well, which is looking back why I think I got so frustrated with my studio practice in the first few years of my career. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have that. Right. But nobody also, nobody had told me either that like, oh, you actually have to build a studio practice not just with, you know, clients and work mm-hmm. and portfolio, but actually with the, the actual practice of going to your studio, doing that's your right. work. And I think the, you know, one of the things I guess I'm is bouncing around in my head is I, I had, um, I was trying to think of like the greatest hit studio practice. So like I was able to go to Tom Monteith's studio, 
it was one of my, you know, big, just hugely important to me. And, um, David Wetzel, hugely important to me. And, uh, Linda Day, just gigantically important to me. And they all had really interesting spaces where they were sort of lived. So even if they didn't full live there full time, there's a couple where, you know, it could accommodate that. And some of that to me was powerful because it, it was like, uh, it signaled like a, a deeply lived in space, a deeply known space. So let's talk about known being known, but like even the space you inhabit, like it's like a practice at dwelling richly, uh, over time repeatedly will have, um, some kind of impact, some kind of, um, outcome that'll have effects to it. That'll, you know, uh, render some kind of benefit, some kind of, um, new consideration or, or, you know, it's like, if you put it this way, the, the negative to this, and I am a hoarder by nature is if you dwell richly in the midst of, of material culture, you will accumulate. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that accumulation has to be looked at. Like, what do we accumulate? What's it for? What's it towards? And I guess like, I think like lately I've been thinking about the examples that I had in the past, like, um, Linda Day had a studio in Los Angeles where her and her partner, they lived. You, you came in the studio and the first phase of it was like a uh, working space, but also like an exhibition space. It had like two 15 foot walls that were 15 foot tall and then ever, ever so wide. And then it went to a smaller hallway into another space where it was a lot more um, chaotic and a lot of work was being made. So you could see a production line between the way the work moved from raw to finished and then you went upstairs and there was like a balcony that overlooked the, the gallery studio space. And then they had like their kitchen and their bedroom. So it was really efficient to their practice. And, um, and it still had a hospitality component to it. Like they had a little courtyard in the back where you could have dinner or lunch and, um, you know, drink wine and talk. And, and so they had really maximized this unique space in, in, in Long Beach. And, um, it felt like every inch of that space was, was habitable and being inhabited in a, in mm. a, in a rich way. Um, nothing was left, uh, idle. Um, that really, I guess in a way stuck out to me. And in some ways I think it's like a metaphor for what we should be as like city dwellers or neighborhood dwellers or county dwellers. It's like, you, you really got to kind of be where you're at and inhabit that space and I've been thinking about that a lot, I guess, is like the value of, of studio practice and getting in there is, um, is it, it tends to, it has the potential to make you more aware and, and um, more practice at inhabiting other spaces, yeah. uh, which hopefully includes other people. You know, I, I don't know, maybe it's like, it's like another way of saying like you, you you can become more of an observer. Now, reason why I say that is because a lot of times I've felt like it's the opposite. You get you stay in your studio for so long that you 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 becoming um, unable to talk to people. You're just too isolated, and um, and I think that could be a mindset more than an an, an effect. And so, if the mindset changes, then the effects follow. And uh, um, so, I think if anything more than ever in this day and age, the practice of dwelling somewhere faithfully and richly 
a studio, I think, kind of can give you that. Because there's things to tend to, to care for, to cultivate, to make, to fail at. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think we need a space to fail in. Yeah. You know, like really, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, we're too curated into and in, in, uh, to the detriment of knowing how to fail well and, and just fail. Like, like it doesn't go well, the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to be able to do that because uh, it, it's not it, it, without it. You know, it's difficult to do it in elsewhere. Um, no, I think that's real. Because I mean, yeah. especially in a, in a society that's in, in increasingly digital. Um, where, you know, the analog practices and, and, and in any space, I'm not talking about just our practices, but analog practices period of, of literally making a phone call, Yeah, you know, even though that's still a digital thing, but, you know, making a phone call or, you know, going to someone's house and talking to them, sitting down for food in a, you know, a, a, a not public space. Right. You know, a lot of those things, uh, they seem to becoming, to be becoming increasingly rare. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, these are some things that if I can speak broadly can actually be highly detrimental to, uh, art and design practice. Yeah. Um, because they move us further and further away from the things that actually allow art and design to flourish. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a painter, but if I were and somebody said, Oh, well, you know, anybody can just go online and, and see these great paintings. I think I just throw my brushes away. Yeah. Because that wouldn't really interest me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when once you when you're seeing when you're seeing real paintings, you settle for what you can get, but not without an eye towards the re, the real first order experience with real work. Because you're making real work, you're 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 your first audience to your painting. You know, you're the first eyes to see it finished, and then you turn it over possibly to other eyes, and uh, and then that tends to change your relationship to your work, and that's a part of the potentially a part of the process if you endeavor into making making work talking painting let's say in general um and so uh without the what i found at least is without the i don't know i think i saw um oh gosh what's it called it's picasso's night is it night fishers something something to do with fishing at night but there's a painting that i'd seen in reproduction for years. And when I saw it in person, it was so modest. So, so specifically what it is and yet powerful enough to enlarge my perceptions of it through mediation. Right. So some essence of it was malleable enough to accommodate various sizes and issues with color printing and if anything, all that did was serve to point to how potent the work was. And yet, uh, upon seeing it, it was extremely hu- humble painting in a lot of ways. See, I had the exact opposite experience when I saw Water Lilies for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I'd seen images of it, right? Yep. And, and, like, kind of, uh, like, uh, section grabs of it for postcards and right. calendars and stuff. But I can still remember the first time I turned the corner at MoMA and I walked into that entire room that yeah. it, it lives in. And I... I I was like, oh, this looks a lot like water lilies. Yeah. But that thing's got to be smaller. Yeah. And I saw it and I was like, what is happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a completely different experience. Yep. I mean, it is, and, and there is something different, um, you know, on that floor, you're, you're passing through these fantastic works of modernism um, that are very active and moving in mm-hmm. so many ways, um, both literally and figuratively. And then uh, you walk into that room and it almost becomes chapel-like. Mm-hmm. It's very quiet. Yeah. Like it has a, has a completely different 
thing happening in that one space than most of the other rooms in that floor of the gallery. Um, and I never had that experience mm-hmm. on paper as no, going through yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the internet or whatever. Yeah, and I think that's definitely, I mean, I think that that's, that's the interesting thing is some things are highly photogenic and they, they live better. I mean, they, you know, my point with the Picasso piece was the, the importance of it was being able to have that encounter with it anchored it and let me understand it well. That particular oh, yeah, piece yeah. in particular. And totally true with Water Lilies. Um, you know, there's several works where, where you see them in person and you're like, it's, stag- it's, it's always going to be first order staggering over and against reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you never have that, then you really are living in a really, what I would call a tactily deficient or impoverished world now tactility is to speak to effects that occur and result from differences in uh organic and inorganic processes like the way we live is embedded with effects so like uh, for instance um the effects of concrete the solidity of concrete bears on my bones differently than hardwood floors where Mm -hmm. there's more give so the effects of the properties produces solidity of a kind that blunts out sound and orients my body in a, a different way because sound is blunted out. So I hear myself differently walking on the floor. I understand my weight and my body mass differently. Now, if I walk in sand, the familiarity, familiarity I have with my body as it relates to concrete or asphalt is shifted. Now there's a new set of effects that are resulting in the way in which sand behaves that changes some sensibility about the usage of my body and the understanding of the way I breathe. And I'm using a cheesy example to, I mean, I'm using a narrow example to talk about how tactility and physical properties have utterly shaping influence over our lives yeah. and over our preferences, over the way we know ourselves and know each other and what we aspire to, what we, what we, uh, want and um, it's not safe in that way because uh, from working on concrete floors teaching, like I, my feet hurt. So I've noticed like, for instance, like I haven't been, you know, I've been off for a month, you know, from VCU. So uh, my feet don't hurt. But I start back to teaching on Monday, mm-hmm. my the bones are going to start to hurt. I'm not complaining. I'm saying um, the, the environment is, uh, that's just one effect from being in that environment, giving myself to that vocation and to those people. Um, so that produces, um, needs and wants. So I'm going to prefer, I'm probably going to want to dip my feet in warm water. And right now I don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. You you see like, so feelings follow and desires follow from tactility. So my point is, um, we know this in so many ways, but we take it for granted, like a family member you don't think is going to go away. And so then you, you, um, give yourself over to the convenience of technology. The, the convenience of the tool is, is wearing you out as much as it is being used to achieve some goal. And so the wearing out is the removal of tact, the effects that follow from tactility. Um, which is another way of talking to, to you about, I guess, um, the analog way in which some people kind of index their influential experiences into um, hierarchies and organizations 
mm-hmm. and they imbue their studio practice with it to keep their mind mindful of that fact so you're not lost to or beholden to you know it's not uh to become a you know uh technological uh puritan where you're you're removed yeah and, but you're also not trying to become beholden to it where you're lost to it and so there's somewhere in the middle you know and i and um it's interesting to think about studio practice right now as like a maker mm-hmm. so when i say maker i guess for me maker assumes painter designer crafter we're making of some kind. So to be a maker, I think, uh, is to potentially take on the responsibility of having a studio practice that doesn't allow you to lose yourself to a senseless world, a world with no senses and, uh, a sense, a world deprived of sensory, um, and, uh, enables our emotions to be subject to runaway desires. Mm -hmm because they're not anchored with um, the tactility of the world. Like to lose sight of what's solid is to ignore the benefit of solidity as you stand on it on a daily basis. You you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. to lose a value for it is to kind of practice the idea that you're not grounded even when you actually are. And, and, And in place of a physical grounds, you will find yourself searching for an emotional grounds to not just re, not just ground your emotions, but to ground your body. That's why people are, are trying to center themselves and like you know, there's a mm-hmm. there's a real real phenomena that follows from concrete reality and our our disregard of it. You know, it's interesting. I don't I don't even know if I'm making sense, man. But no, um, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, but that that you know that concrete reality, like there is a reason I collect certain things. Yeah, like you're saying. And there's a reason that Aaron Draplin has boxes and boxes yeah. of stuff that uh, kind of acts as, um, you know, input or influence or something into his, um, you know, his practice. Um, I think there's a reason that we, um, even though we might not ever show it to folks, we hang on to the things we did early in our careers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not in our portfolio, but they're yeah. somewhere in a box yep. shoved in an attic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that, I mean, I, I sit at my table at night. Uh, mm-hmm. with my laptop open, doing client work. And uh, it's not, it's not, um, I don't know, it, it it doesn't always scratch the right itch. Mm-hmm. Um, and not because of the work itself, but because I think that so much of my work, I don't get to see the analog part of it. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. I'm doing the digital part. You don't part. get to see it wear down. Yeah. So they, yeah. they see the production and everything. So, you know, some of the, some of the stuff that, I've enjoyed doing the most and least at the same time as I was working with a international company on a trade show they were putting together. And so we developed like 17 different like swag items for this trade show that they were doing. And, you know, most people you hear that and you're like, Oh, some like kitschy keychains or something. It's like, no, this was like, this was a high end trade show for people that were paying six figures to be a part of this service. Mm-hmm. And so, the stuff we were making was fantastic mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it because I was able to make things really not having to deal with any sort of budget. Mm-hmm. So, cause they were like, we've got a large budget for this. We're going to make all of this stuff. Here's your list. Let's do it. Um, and so we got to make some really beautiful looking things, but I never got to see any of them. Right. Like, I didn't get to hold the thing or look at the thing or anything. Yeah. I just, 
How do here's you, the file. How do you prep yourself like emotionally for that? I mean, it's really tough because um, one of the things that I always do as a designer is I really have to think about how does this exist within a larger context. And so it's not just, um, let's say, for example, I'm, I'm creating uh, some signage for uh, like a keynote speaker. Well, I'm seeing the space, understanding scale, how far people will be from it, the colors that will be incorporated in the room, all of these things play on the context that make the thing work or not work mm-hmm. um, as an object. Um, and so with a lot of it, you just kind of get a rough idea. Mm-hmm. So it feels almost like you're you're doing your work with one eye closed. Mm-hmm. Um and is so, there other is there other um, subsidiary tactile? So, for instance, you know, as a painter, I can go in my studio and smell either fresh <laughs> fresh water or old water, mm-hmm. or I can, you know, there's smells that come with opening up paint, oil, mm-hmm. acrylic, old, new. Um, they all get folded into my relationship to my practice. Mm-hmm. So like when I was an, you know, when I was a high jumper, the one thing I miss, it's weird. The one thing I miss the most of anything is, uh, you would think is easy to come by, but it was uh, early morning practice with fre- fresh cut grass. Yeah, yeah. But it, it wasn't early morning practice, fresh cut grass, i.e. just for, it was everything that brought you to it that way. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't really get it unless you were, getting up and breathing and running and training and using your body. So more than the sport uh, about the way in which your body exists in that space. And so, you know, there's that in the studio and there's a way I can assess the season of my studio. Oh, I've left, I've left things unattended. It smells, uh, there's a particular way that wet brushes smell like moldy. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a part of the equation of the studio. Just like I, I partly love books. I love reading. Uh-huh. When books are new, yeah, I like the smell of new books. Oh, definitely. And it's, I used to hide that because I feel like it cheapened the integrity of what the book was for. But I'm like, I'm just denying the fullness of of the experience. The tactility is there, and it intoxicates a little bit, uh-huh. you know. So for you, um, if you think back to like those occasions where you're denied certain levels of outcome and gratification, you know, is there anything else? I mean, is it like? It could be as much as sitting on a crappy chair that someone's passed gas in too much. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a part of my tactile experience <laughs> that I miss or anything. I'm just trying um, to insinuate something about you. <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, you know, it, uh, the first the first job I had uh, in the industry, so to speak, um, during uh, the first year of master's work, I was uh, I was doing press checks at a regional press. And so I would go in and I would, I think I've talked about this before on here, I'd, I'd sit in a room and I'd watch whatever channel the TV was stuck on. So I usually got stuck watching like Geraldo and soap operas. <laughs> but I'd bring my laptop with me and do work. Um, and they had like, you know, uh, baskets full of like, you know, Nutrigrain bars and stuff like that. And I'd sit there for a few hours and then a guy would call me in and I'd put on my, my hard hat and my earplugs. We'd go out to the press floor and we would press all the, we would check all the folios. Mm. Um, and there's something about the smell of, um, of a, of a press floor. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, uh, and you know, it's, so it's, it's loud. It's got those concrete floors. Um, it's got the smell of ink, which I also share a love for. Um, and so there's something very nice about all of that. Right. Also the mechanical smell. 
you yeah. know, kind of like that, uh, the grease, the oil, the, the, the stuff that kind of goes into all the, those heavy machines. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the stuff I really fell in love with. Um, it's why I d- wanted to do, you know, print design, um, yeah. early on is that stuff just kind of captured my imagination. Yeah. So I think really the, those smells, you know, um, and so even if it comes to something where maybe I'm doing a project, um, I'd, I'd like to get some stuff printed just for myself just sure. to see, okay, here's what it actually would look like, yeah. you know, was what I was doing and what maybe an art director I was working with or whoever else is what they were saying. Like, did this actually come to fruition as something yeah. that is meaningful? Yeah. Um, I, I actually love uh, the texture of different types of papers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain things and, and the way that... Uh, especially raised ink feels. Yeah. Um, those are things that I think I miss not being able to be a part of it. I mean, there's right. a sound, there's a specific sound to the way that a new magazine out of a box from the press yeah. sounds as you flip through it. That's different than when you get in the mail. Yeah. So those things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's why you have all those people that open boxes and stuff like that online. Oh, heck yeah. It's, it's the way we, we <sighs> I mean, the thing is if I wanted to live out in the wild, I guess I would. So I can't mm-hmm. say that I want to live in the wild. I don't have the the uh, the um, transcendental mm-hmm. um, sort of desire to return to nature kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think that's over. <laughs> if that were the end, then we'd have been there already. Yeah. So that's not to say it doesn't have its value because I can walk outside and see stars and marvel at trees and my kids we practice that i always tell them like if you stand here long enough you'll notice the grass growing you just mm-hmm. you have to decide if it's worth it to you to stand there for a couple of days watching it yeah um i really believe that's true i mean i said that a long time ago but um having said that i'm not anti i mean i you know uh i was in my studio and um a good friend of mine get, got me like a bluetooth speaker for christmas mm-hmm. and uh so, you know, I got my laptop open, listening to a lecture and then, uh, turn that off, turn my phone on, put on this Bluetooth thing. Cause it wasn't working on my computer very well. Uh, my computer's old. And, um, so I'm, I'm like sitting there with a phone that has everything painting. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like I, I used to have to go to the library and spend the day there looking for stuff that I can look for in two seconds. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not all, it's not like, it's like, oh gosh, that's terrible. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh yeah. You know, definitely. it's like amazing. Um, but, uh, I also like the fact that I had to kill a bunch of black widows in my studio <laughs> <laughs> and one of them would pop oh. thing was so huge. It scared the daylights out of me. I couldn't. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Cause that's what happens with three months of not really being in your studio Yeah, is a, a new, a new family tried to move in <laughs> and make a home. And I was like, no, y- y'all can't live here. <laughs> You're dangerous. <laughs> yeah, for real. And it makes me feel, uh, nervous when I see you, <laughs> I'm going to have to kill you with my broom. Um, but yeah, like, uh, something about that. If we're, if we're not practicing that, I think that's part of the cultivative aspect. The cultivative nature of being a maker is, uh, is, uh, having those moments of attunement to all the contributing factors, mm-hmm. all the, the effects that follow from the contributing factors and knowing that they are shaping you. And so like when you talk about the machinery, it's a accidental to um, what it's for, but in, when it's accumulated with, when it 
fits into the matrix of the function of things that are in that space, it creates a unique experience that actually is probably influencing the creativity that's occurring there. Oh yeah. And so thinking about your studio in that way, I mean, I've, I've thought about that a lot. So like I know for instance, now that I am an absolute hoarder and there's those great pictures of, I think it's Francis Bacon studio. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that used to be my inspiration. And then I realized that, um, I get there very quickly, but I don't produce Francis Bacon paintings. And, uh, also, uh, it makes me anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, so it works in the heat of the moment, but generally speaking, it just becomes burdensome. And so I had to, I had to really experiment with like keeping my space clean and anybody who knows me knows that that's probably shocking, but, um, I'm almost the opposite now. I mean, a lot of times my space doesn't look like I'm, I'm using it because I tend to want that, um, that clean space, um, Sometimes I think it's because uh, I've hung out with certain designers and people too long in academia that, you know, that's that sensibility, that values rubbed off on me. But um, I've come to value a great deal like organization and having a clean start, uh, having a clear space because I know that texture and tactility has real effect all the time. Like there is no neutrality on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, whenever I get into a new season of work, I think the, you know, kind of the warm up for me is to go through, you know, especially within my office of ECU, a new semester starts. And one of the first things I do within that space is I clean everything off, mm-hmm. go through the paperwork, throw away what I can, recycle, shred. I need, I need to do this and I didn't. I'm so hating myself. <laughs> so it's it's kind of that first step. But, you know, the same with any sort of, um, you know, I, I, during uh, doctoral work, I had a very specific kind of corner of a room that was my spot. And you could tell when I was starting a new chapter of my dissertation because my desk was clean. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. You could look at it other times and say, oh, it's, it's amazing how many mountains of books and papers you have on this thing. And it's like, yeah, because I'm, I'm writing. And I think a lot of times it, it was almost like the, the space I use um, seems to mirror the headspace that I need yeah. to do my work. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's true. I, I was going to ask you, like, when in those seasons, were you leaving messes somewhere else in your house or, you well, know what I mean? Well, it's funny, like, if you're talking about, like, during doctoral work, uh, during those seasons, I was rarely in other parts of my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mainly at that spot. Gotcha. You know, it was, you know, it, it'd be a completely different thing than what we're talking about in terms of studio work, but, you know, same sort of concepts underpin it. Um, in terms of like the, the focus and the work and direction and things like that. And so, um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember, uh, if you ask my wife, she would probably say, of course. Um, cause I tend to be, uh, not a messy person, but I tend to, um, I tend to accumulate things in spaces. Um, so writing notes, making lists, having stacks of paper, um, looking at books, for different things and leaving them in stacks. And after a while, it just gets a little cluttered. Um, but that, that does in a lot of ways mimic the way I think my brain feels when I'm mid project, I've got 4,000 things that I'm trying to synthesize into a singular direction and what things stay, what things go. And after that's done and completed, then, well, all the stuff can be cleared and just be pushed off, uh, put back where it goes to be kind of re-indexed and then, you know, resynthesize later on right. as need be. Right. Yeah, Which is, I mean, also why, like in my office, I always have to have my books because at any time I need them almost as a point to say, 
oh, here's where a thought in my head can live some more. Let me pull this book, yeah, read through this stuff and see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's a, it's a definitely a conversation somewhere in there. Um, when you have those books there, like you feel like, you, yeah, yeah. There's it's, something about it. It allows you to be like solitary in your space, totally, but still feel like you're in conversation. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Yeah, I think I I relate to that heavy. Um, where uh, let me ask you a whack question. Go for it. All right. So what's the <laughs> what's the craziest thing? Maybe you can't answer this on on air. What's the craziest thing you've done in your studio out of the necessity to be in there? Like something that you'd almost be <laughs> something that where you'd be like. If anybody ever knew, oh my gosh, maybe you can't answer that. I don't, I don't know, know, dude. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if I can answer this. I think I can because I feel like this is a very kind of a standard thing. All right, so for um, two years uh-huh. during graduate school, I had a fantastic studio space in an old building, and it uh, was amazing. The building itself was probably not amazing. You know, it was. Uh, loud radiators and paint that was suspiciously peeling off the wall. Mm -hmm. And I tried not to breathe too deeply in the space, but, Mm -hmm. and carpet that had a funny smell to it, but it it had all these layers and all this evidence of the fact of all these other artists and designers who had been in the space because there was paint everywhere and broken things and oddly put together pieces of whatever. And so for a year I kind of underutilized the space. Right. But then the second year I had it, um, quite literally for a period I lived in that space. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a very real sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the point where it was, uh, it was interesting because I would have like, uh, students and friends that would come into the studio for different things, like had my office hours there and whatnot. Um, and so I, I, I had a cot yeah. that I would, I had a hiding place for because I didn't want people to be like, are you literally sleeping in here? Yeah. It's like, sometimes. Yep. And it's like, oh, like in the middle of the day for a nap? And it's like, yeah, no. Yeah. No, like at no, three no, in the morning. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I, uh, I, I say that. I'll, I'll, I'll throw my... I don't even know why I'm doing this. <laughs> I just feel like you got you to throw... I'm gonna it's, throw just, my, it's just you and me, Ryan. Yeah, right it's now, just me right? and you right now. Just, so I was just thinking about it because I was like in an insane place. And similar thing. And uh, so, you know, you think about uniform. I, mm-hmm. So in order to accommodate living in my studio, like there was a time where I didn't have a place to live. So I was like technically homeless. So I was yeah, yeah. Um, living in my studio mm-hmm. in, in, at VC, uh, CSU Sacramento. And in uh, these studios are an old fish hatchery. It's called, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember forgetting what it's called, like Art Lab or Lab or I, I forget now. Wow. It'll come back to me. Somebody text me or email me. Um, but it was a fairly dilapidated place, yeah. which I grew, I kind of like growing up poor. I like dilapidated places. Like there's like something aesthetically right. about it that I resonated with me. So, mm-hmm. so I was very comfortable there. And because of that, you, you know, in a studio practice as a painter, you cultivate kind of a messy, um, a necessitated messy uniform that also enables you to be uniform to the context. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes to visit you, you just kind of look like you belong there. They don't pick up on the fact that you're living there. Yeah. So I had a fridge and a couch and I had to sleep on the couch, but the couch also just served to be like, Oh, have a seat. Look at this painting. Cause the, the, the ceiling would, um, 
you know, the, I don't know, the, the tallest point was maybe 10 feet, mm-hmm. but then it angled back, you know, like a, like a triangular kind of thing, a, a one, going one direction, like, uh, all the way down to like a foot. So you, you know, as you walk backwards, you had to duck down mm-hmm. and, uh, um, but this fish hatcher was spooky, <laughs> real scary. Yeah. Um, play tricks on your mind kind of scary mm. people saw ghosts there kind of scary nice so i'd stay there sometimes a lot of times mm-hmm. and sleep there and be scared to death so i'd be scared to go to the bathroom yeah <laughs> so it's a couple times where i think i peed in a mountain dew <laughs> bottle <laughs> and then forgot <laughs> how much did you forget <laughs> Like forgot and then threw it out. I would put them behind the. uh, I'd put them behind the couch, (laughs) so then I get. I'd have faculties coming in to do reviews. Yeah, and then I'd be sitting there sweating bullets because I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) because I literally be scared to go to the bathroom, man. You know. Um, Yeah. There's. Yeah. Anyhow. No, that's. I mean, the uh, (laughs) the the time I spent in in my studio really like staying there. I mean, like there's something, you know, something strange about it because some people might, they'll be like, Oh man, that's such, they might go like the romantic ideal and be like, Oh, that's so great. You're like, really, you're like living with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, nah, it's not really great to like hide the fact that you have like three changes of clothes, yes. like hidden behind something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because you're trying to be professional, but you also understand that like right now, like this is what you got. That's right. I mean, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's a tough thing. And I would, I would love to tell you, I would love to tell you that that time that I spent that was such a like a just intimate granular time in that studio was highly productive, but yeah. I don't know that it was. Yeah, yeah, that's what kills me is like I, I was in there. I mean, I made a lot of stuff. So, you know, there's something about you don't want to make mistake activity. I think it was John Wooden said activity for success. Mm-hmm. So I was very active, and I did produce a lot. But I also know that the life that I lead now leads me to leads me to know that I was squandering time and I was maybe one of the most ambitious people there who was always in my studio working. Mm -hmm. So, but the work was so wrought with, um, so tainted by the, the experience of trying to figure, trying to try on being an artist Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, it was narrowing my focus to the point that, um, I was not free, you know? So, so I was desperate in my studio and I was in between spaces um, for a bit of time, not that long, but a bit of time. And that's what kind of uh, set up the rhythm of just then once I got into a roommate situation, mm-hmm. um, just choosing to stay there um, even when I had a place to live and uh, which was illegal. You weren't supposed, you know, that was not allowed on campus. So yeah. you had to like, um, you know, fortunately, if you just stay there and you look like you're in your studio making paintings, then, mm-hmm. but, um, oh my gosh, like I, I definitely squandered time in that studio. Oh, yeah. I mean, more, th- gosh, it's, that's just a weird perspective on productivity and intention, I guess. Well, you know, I think that's probably, it's a, it's a good direction because I got some questions about this, um, as well. Um, you know, we like to think, oh, I'm in my studio, I'm in my studio mm-hmm. over and over again. But, you know, you're talking about John Wooden with uh, activity versus success. Yeah. Um, and so it might be worth kind of sitting on for a few minutes just to talk about, um, well, what does it look like? What are some maybe things that have been uh, good or bad 
as we've understand, understood what it means for the time in our studio to actually be successful. Maybe um, even some things that have helped you kind of say, like when I get in my studio, I have a certain routine with yeah. my work yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that I've established that's really helped me out um, and certain kind of uh, things that are happening within the space mm-hmm. to help that work. Yep. Go on. Like you mentioned, listening to music. That's a big part of what I do. I have to listen to certain types of music to, yep. to really get in the right headspace most of the time. Um, yeah. But is there, you know, some like things you've learned yeah. uh, over your yeah, career yeah. within your studio practice yep. that have helped you or you've found or you've learned that they actually hurt you? Yeah. So I think one thing is uh, delaying, delaying gratification and building my studio practice out of delayed gratification is a big thing. Okay. So, so what I mean by that is um, front loading my if I, if I truly want to uh, have um, something that I can give a, give to other people, meaning, you know, work in a show, people see it, they experience it, that kind of thing, then I need to um, not be hasty in getting there and really spend the preemptive time preparing myself to get there. Um, and what I guess what I mean by that is I have to account for the fact that I can't make art every day. Yeah. Um, I can't, so I can't make art sometimes for, um, months on end. Um, so what I can do is like, so for instance, if you take, take where I'm at is I may build, you know, 20 panels and because I know I may not be able to work on them right away, I will, not even allow myself to have those kinds of thoughts. I'll really try to tunnel vision on, I'm just building panels for the next week yeah, or whatever. So, and then I'll organize those and let those live and breathe. And I won't get anxious about when I'm going to be able to gesso them. Mm-hmm. So I, what I've tried to do is, is have a, a big picture and then compartmentalize the picture because I am not able to be in the studio all the time. Um, I also don't need to be in the studio all the time. Like I don't need to be on Instagram letting you see 24 seven in my studio uh, because the value is not in whether or not people know I'm productive. The value is on whether or not what I do actually happens, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's much bigger than whether I'm in there 24 seven. Well, let me say it this way. Um, you can be 24-7 in your studio and make nothing of consequence apart from what it maybe does or stimulates for you, and that's fine. Um, all I'm trying to do is disassociate the connection between the the idea of you have to be a slave to your studio in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's true per se. Uh, however, there are seasons where you do need to be in the studio a lot. And I think artists, especially if you, you haven't come from much or you struggled financially or whatever, you really, really cherish it. So I think there is that. I think there is like a, I'm in a studio, like almost like a, I can't believe it. And I have that. I, I go in, you know, I've had this studio for three years. There's not a day I go by where I can't believe that I have a house in a studio. Yeah. Because I've never even thought I could. And it didn't happen until just three years ago. So um, I sit in there and still kind of marvel. And so in that sense, I'm excited um, about being in my studio. It's, I'm grateful. I don't feel like I deserve it. Um, but, um, I think one thing I think is just critical is to account. If you account for how much time you can give, then you can make yourself more responsible in part. 
because a lot of times we if we can't get into the heat of the fight then we don't we don't make but if you if you delay the need to be in the heat of the fight of making and just went in there and, and uh, cleaned your space and organized your brushes and I don't know um, laid down a coat of gesso and then went to bed and then three weeks later you you were able to come back and you could just start to muck around and then you spent two hours and then went to bed like if you can do that you will be benefited by it oh yeah you, you know what I'm saying so I think if anything I'm trying to say that like. Uh, distilling down truthfully what you can do, not overcompensating with mindless activity to prove to yourself and others that you are an artist when you really need to be doing other responsibilities to help you be an artist. Like, you know, uh, the person who's like, I can't afford to get a job because then I won't be able to be an artist. And it's like, no, get a job, pay your bills, and then work at the studio practice based on what's left over. And, and you know, I would say don't neglect real relationships with people. Um, um, but for me, the as someone who struggled with organization, really compartmentalizing and in, uh, in, in practice and in organizing up of a, a, a process has helped me because I only just want to paint. I don't want to build panels. I don't want to do the. I hate organizing, and so I've had to really, really acquire a taste for it and see the value in really not faking that. Because when I've tried to skip steps and fake it, it just ruins the final outcome of what I do because there's some embedded fatal flaw that wouldn't have been there had I spent the time preparing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. Um, I was speaking with an illustrator a couple months ago who was having a hard time. Um, and he was saying, you know, I, I just, none of my work feels like it's like good. And I was like, well, I'm looking at your work and your work, like it, it looks good. It looks fantastic. Like there's no, I don't have any issue with, um, your work, but what is your issue? He's like, well, it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel finished. And I was like, well, what, what does that even mean? Like, what does finished mean? How have you defined finished for your work? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, that's part of your problem. You're shooting for an unattainable goal right now. Yeah. Um, but also, um, like he was showing me his process work and, uh, I said, you know, I think here's your issue. The piece you showed me that you said feels remotely finished, um, your process work is much better. And you've actually put the work into the piece. You've seen your process as work and not just your outcome as mm -hmm. work. So, you know, you, in one of his sketchbooks, he had like 12 pages of sketches for this process and he was trying out these different ideas and you could see the idea just kind of evolve and change throughout the pages. Um, and then for the stuff he didn't feel like was hitting the mark, it, he might have two or three thumbnails. And I was like, well, here's your issue. You're trying in your final piece to work out ideas that you have no clue about because you haven't worked them out in any other way. The way you've set up your process, you're denying, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah There's yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff that's just not a part you're just not, you're not putting in that, that earlier work. That's right. You're and not think, seeing that. We yeah. think of that. I don't know. It's, it's strange. There's this, this separation sometimes I think where we view our studio work as like only the last stages of what we do. Yeah. That's so right. building the yeah, panel, that's kind of my putting point. the gesso, not that's a right. thing. Brush, brooming, you know, sweeping, getting rid of the bugs, whatever it is, that stuff. I've had to really, really. So see, see when I was in grad school, that's, that's where I was. Like I didn't tend to any of the space. I just. Yeah went in there and thought the studio practice was the painting. The studio practice was the, the practice of maintaining an op, 
a, a kind of a, I know this language can bug some, but kind of like an optimated, optimal cultivated space that is uh, inviting, clear, and uh, freeing to the work. So trying to uh, organize away from kind of like a, and I mean, use strong hyperbolic language, but enslavement to um, unintended, loud visual noises in the room, ill-formed clutters that um, that actually um, have an effect or have a set of effects that that tugs on you, pulls on you. Now, here's the thing: I, I got I say that with a caveat. Um, that could be really the right space for a maker. Mm-hmm. So it's not that everyone needs to have a clean space in the same way, but, but there is something about it though. Like you can be intoxicated aesthetically with clutter. And so then your work is cluttered and you, you've, you've grown to have an affinity for it, but because you've never had a clean space, you've never known that really that's not what you want. Yeah. You, you, you're blinded by, by it. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. I'm blind. You're blinded by it historically. So you're like, uh, this is just what it is. And it's like, no, actually the environment respectfully is way more powerful than you. And you just didn't know it because oh, yeah. you think you're, you're in control of it. But, uh, the effects that surround us have so much power. Um, but it's, it's an elusive power. It's not a power that, um, it's a power that affords you a sense of freedom, but, um, is duly acting on you. And uh, I just don't think people people understand that at all. No, definitely. I, and it's funny because you had mentioned earlier the fact that maybe like through undergrad, you've never had really a studio experience. And so maybe folks don't really understand like what that looks like. And I, I've seen that firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see, go around any school that has uh, an art program of uh, any size um, and you're going to see the students with the drawing boards and the bags and they're carrying mm-hmm. this and that and they've got cameras or whatever else. And they're moving from place to place almost as this like, kind of like, you know, uh, like hunter gatherers doing art practice among the landscape. Yeah, nomadic, right? nomadic uh, art practice. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and, you know, it's difficult, I think, because uh, that um, that nomadic quality, I think, uh, probably is impacting the practice a lot more than they really understand. Yes. And, uh, you know, we've seen this firsthand because uh, VCU Arts has a program called MOB, called Middle Abroad. Mm-hmm. And um, a part of that is, you know, if you get to be in that, they offer it as a course and you get to do a lot of projects that are fantastic within the community. Yep. And if you get to be a part of it, you actually do get some kind of studio desk space. Yeah. Um, or at least they have historically. Yeah. Um, and what you hear from students overwhelmingly is how much impact that totally. has on their work. Totally. The fact that they have a place where their yep. stuff is, yep. they recognize it, it feels familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, they can build it and make it and craft it in the same way they would their work, right. but they're crafting the environment in which that work lives. Right. Um, and which that's my, you're hitting understate my, it at yeah, all. Yeah, you're hitting up my point earlier about learning to dwell richly in your studio. Yes. That's what I mean by that is the practice of doing that enables you to practice cultivating other spaces for others to do it as well. Yeah. That's, so whether you're, you're making just a, and I don't mean just in a negative, but whether your, your, your biggest contribution uh, is a work that'll go on the wall. Well, it, it doesn't live neutral to the wall. It, right. it lives as a, um, a accumulation of, Composition, compositional realities that cohere together f- to produce the effects that uh, act on you in that space. Mm-hmm. And so then the question only becomes, what is that space? So 
um, that shapes. It shapes. And we know this with neighborhoods that are impoverished. We know this in neighborhoods that are enriched, possibly to the point of excess. So they, they actually always shape, which is powerful and means the practice is imperative to the work and understanding the nature of your work outside the studio and how it can or cannot live in certain spaces and, and why it should or should not, or why the work is compromised in a space, but it's worth doing it anyways or whatever, you know? Um, and uh, learning to not be anxious sometimes of being alone might be an important, important thing uh, now, whereas maybe 20 years ago, uh, maybe that wasn't as important to say. Yeah. Um, it might be okay to learn to not be as, you know, this whole idea of tuning off, uh, offline, you know, this residency is it, it, I was like, well, I don't think I could do it. Um, when I just have kids, I can't, I can't go a month and not talk to my kids, my wife, you know? Yeah. Um, but it'd be tough to not, not check my email for a month. I know I did, uh, I did a one week program like that. Just a short residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was in a place where like it didn't matter if you wanted to be online, you couldn't because it was so so out there that um, there just was no cell phone signal. Like on a very clear day, you could stand at a very high point and get a little bit, like enough to be able to text somebody, but not actually make a phone call. No phone. And so, no phone calls. And it was kind of kind of strange, you know, because you come back into the world and you're like, well, what did I miss? And yeah. you felt like, like Encino Man or something that you got yeah. thawed out of the ice. Yeah. Encino like, Man. Hey, what's up? <laughs> that poor uh, guy. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, I think there's a, you know, a lot with this. It's uh, some of the stuff we've talked about has really reminded me of um, the conversations we had about like integration versus yeah. balance. Yeah. Um, you know, that uh, some of the the most prolific studio practices I've seen have been people who understand how their work actually integrates in their life. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, you know, where their, their studio actually becomes an extension of a lot of what they already do or how mm-hmm. they already see the world. And it, and the other way around also impacts the way of what they do and how they see the world. So in, I think it was 20, 2012, um, the Cooper Hewitt was doing a lot of their renovations. Um, so the place was closed. They were still doing uh, shows, and so they had this fantastic show um, called Graphic Design and Production at Governor's Island, um, you know, which was a fantastic way to do it. There were these kind of uh, multi-purpose use buildings uh, on the island, and so they they took the space over, they curated it, they did this amazing show, and uh, I was there doing a a private walkthrough with Ellen Lupton, who had curated the show, and she um, was talking about her studio at home, and, you know, she's... uh, if you know anything about Ellen Lupton, you know that it, it seems like she can put a book out like every three to six months. And I think there have been years where that has been the clip that mm-hmm. she's been doing it. She's just prolific in her work. Um, and some of that has to do, I think, with how she was talking about her studio and talking about the way that she interacts with her her husband, Abbott Miller, who is also a designer and writer. Mm. And the way that she was describing her home, um, having not seen images of it, uh, it very much just kind of sounded like you walked into the front door of their house and she had a space, her husband had a space, her children had spaces, and they just had, their house was just a big studio. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it didn't fight with the idea of home mm-hmm. because there was something very generative about that space. 
where their conversations were already in this spot where they were doing things with their children that were related to what they do for their careers. Yeah. It's immersive. Where they were a part of it. Right. And so it didn't, it wasn't this whole idea of like, oh, this is like some unhealthy bleed of work into your home life. Yeah. But it was very much an understanding that the same person that lives in your home is the same person you take to work with you. Right. And so there should right. be some very big overlaps. Yeah. Some continuity. And so the, the continuity that was there, I think, uh, you know, that, like that has stuck out in my mind of like, wow, it's really fantastic that there's not this kind of strange break from place to place. Yeah. But the environment in which you live was an environment that was so properly curated mm -hmm. that you can work and live and love and eat and welcome and be hospitable mm -hmm. all within the same space. Right. Yeah. I like the immersive aspect. I think that I, I think, uh, uh, that's key to, having a better idea for how to influence others. I mean, if you think about it, like a lot of what we make, ultimately you want it to um, enhance the quality of life for someone. You know, like if you're an artist, you want them to have an experience, a set of feelings, um, a set of thoughts, any number of variations on that. Um, something, there's some intent, you know, that that is a... Uh, is a benefit. I mean, I was trying to think like, I don't know if anybody makes art to tear other people down. I, I do think you make art to protest and to destroy ideologies that you're not supportive of. And so that's a whole different discussion, but in the general kind of idea of things, like even then the idea is that by doing so it, it creates a better situation for others. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's always some betterment aspect. It's always, a, it, I, I think to, to endeavor to make is to, is to inherently, it's inherently utopic in some kind of way. Hmm. Um, it's still, it, they're embodiments of hope that just kind of come forward. So um, to think in more immersive terms is to think more honestly about and soberly about the goals for the work that you have. That's fair. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, someone said something a few years ago that stuck in my head that was uh, we... Um, it's not that we have a problem with answers. It's that we have a problem with asking good enough questions. Mm. And I think this kind of hints at that same point, right? Where um, we focus so much sometimes on the outcomes of what we do, right? I need to have 12 of this. Mm -hmm. I need to finish this thing. I have this show. I have yeah. this client work, whatever it is, um, that we do forget that our work can be very immersive. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if we if we have a terrible night's sleep, well, the next day in the studio may not be that great. Mm -hmm. And that's an impact, right? We, uh, um, spend an entire weekend just eating garbage food and whatever else. Listening like, to Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> the next week is probably going to be a little hard on you. Yeah. So, you know, there's, we understand those things right. very clearly, but then. Were you trying to set me up to talk about Taco Bell? <laughs> no, okay, but I, I did think about uh, your stories of grad school with okay. the, the, the Whoppers. So that's right. I was, I yeah. Mean, but, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and that being like very much like a microcosm for so many experiences. Yes. Um, but then we have other things where it's just like, you know, the act of uh, like dutifully like sweeping up the floor of your yep. studio. That's like right. That is an immerse a part of the immersive uh, idea of, of studio practice that it's not one of those things where you get to. I don't know. We almost think of it as like uh like something that we're streaming off of Netflix or like a channel we're changing on TV yeah, where yeah, you'd be like, big. Oh, and, and now it's football yep. instead of the news. That's right. It's, you know, I, I can't turn my work on and off like that. Sure. It's impossible. Yeah. 
Um, in fact, so I to found act out. like it's not there doesn't change that it's there. So it, exactly. it ends up hurting you. I mean, I think one of the things I talk, I guess, I don't know, in another world, maybe I'd write a book about responsible, <laughs> the responsible studio practice. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, I think the unsexy, um, there's two things that I, I've been thinking about a lot that are terribly unpopular and I don't even know, but uh, is character, the character of an individual, especially a maker, and taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, character follows, it seems. Character and personality are different. Char- personality is a specified way in which your character is brought forward into the lives of others. Mm-hmm. In a way, it facilitates, it expresses it in the manner it does. Responsibility cultivates character. Taking responsibility cultivates character. That might lead to the humanizing of your personality. Hmm. Um, so it works towards the ends of humanizing. So a responsible studio practice will enlarge the character of the individual in process over time such that their personality will uh, be enhanced to the benefit of others, um, to the humanizing of oneself and to others, possibly. And the other is true. Not taking responsibility uh, will diminish character, which will distort personality and, uh, and therefore have distortive effects on others. And then you will have to decide what to do about it, which is a responsibility move. And if you're in the habit of not taking responsibility, you will be forced to acquire a taste for distortion. That makes sense. And I would say to back that up, I was in a meeting yesterday with um, uh, some folks who own a uh, studio that has done a lot of work with some pretty big name Hollywood films. And uh, they were talking about what it looks like to bring on uh, new folks, what it looks like to hire. Um, And they, the first thing they said was, your ability is always going to be secondary to a lot of your, uh, the things about you. Mm-hmm. And so somebody in the conversation pressed and I'm like, well, what, is, you know, what do you mean by that? And they said, um, you could be just to use the metaphor of grades. They were like, you could be like a C student, but if you were, uh, conscientious, dependable and responsible, you would get a job here over and over again against somebody who was an A plus student mm-hmm. who was not those things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about that that we we kind of bristle against it, but there's still um, something out there that says, no, these are actually really important qualities. Like right. they're hugely important. And, and we see that not just in relation to other people as maybe we've gotten kind of tired of hearing, you know, mm-hmm. like, why do I need to be responsible? Uh, well, you need to be responsible because it affects others. That sometimes maybe people feel that feels a little hollow. Sure. But when it comes down to it, when you think of these things, the fact that you're not going to be responsible in your work and then irresponsible in the world. You're actually, th- there will be a consistency that will happen there. Yeah, the so likelihood you increases. One, yeah, not it the increases other. the other. It's the, it's the, um, the practice of it is, uh, changes the com- kind of even the orientation of the work. You know, it's the, it's the practice of being inconvenienced in order to gain, in order to be in some ways the best of what you like, you know, it's like, the, like talk about practicing failure, practicing and being inconvenienced, like learning to mm-hmm. 
learning to um, sort of you know delight in the inconvenience, if you will, it seems impossible. But um, orienting yourself to what is uh, in a more integrative sense, you know, um, will be character forming. It's you know it's it's uh, um, I can look back. I was a you know paper boy when I was ten, and, and getting up at four thirty to wrap papers as a ten year old. And my daughter right now is 10 and it's like, whoa, you know, I can't, I can and can't imagine her getting up at 10 to work, but, but I did before school and I delivered papers successfully on a bike in Southern California and hated it, didn't hate it, Uh you know, like didn't, I was a, I was learning it and I was, uh, it was a, uh, it was bigger than me. So I couldn't wrap my mind around it yet. And some of the benefit has proven useful now so the cultivative nature of it had an enduring property that sort of uh has sprouted over the uh the totality of my life mm-hmm. um because i can't ever forget getting up on christmas morning and my parents being like you took a job and the paper goes before you get to see what Santa Claus brought you. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> and so I had to go deliver papers on Christmas. Yeah. And I remember my dad helping me. The one time my my stepdad he he actually it was Christmas, so he's a little extra generous. So mm-hmm. he decided to he helped me wrap them that day to get it done faster. Yeah. You know. And um, I remember driving my bike and it was cold and it going like everyone's asleep or doing toys and I'm duh I'm inconvenienced here. <laughs> mm-hmm you know, doing this work and delivering these papers. Um, that was huge. That's character building. Yeah. Where do you go from there? You, what kind of person would I, I don't know. I mean, I speculate, but I'm like, uh, that possibly set up the appreciation I have for when I, I mentioned to you being in, being in athletics later in life yeah. and uh, sitting out early in the morning in the cool of the day or whatever with the grass and having a sensibility for it, having a resonance for it. Um, there's probably some continuity there. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's oh, probably yeah. it, it, and uh, it it affects you. It like, how do you say it? It's like uh, I don't want to talk it mechanistically, but it's like uh, uh, things and situations have a way of working on you and tweaking or shaping you, shaking mm-hmm. you down, uh, articulating you in a way, um, framing you. And then you you internally orient yourself towards the framing, so the way you're being framed uh, invites um, an acclamation or a response. That's an interesting space to live in, and that's every time in every space we are living in it. That's why I say nothing is neutral. Uh, we are just neutral about things. We're apathetic about it. But if we're really taking to task what it means to be a maker, then the studio is charged with character forming potential. That's that goes forward out into the shaping of other people's character and identities. And that sounds scary because it sounds authoritative in a way, or, you know, it sounds like an affront to our autonomy. That's a big discussion. Whether we're, what, what do we mean when we say we're free and we just do whatever we want? Like, I mean, um, that's a statement we make, but um, how that plays out is very different. You know, if the road's bumpy, you can't will it to be smooth. Yeah. You know, a bumpy yeah. road, bad roads in Richmond are wearing out 
my car. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can feel it. It's frustrating. I know why it's happening. Mm-hmm. This wouldn't be happening if I lived in a uh, street with well-paved roads. Mm-hmm. Bumpy roads keys up your emotional frame a little more. You know, mm-hmm. that every day creates a different kind of sensibility in you, a keyed up sensibility. Like, you you know, I keep using round ground as metaphor, but I guess it's just to say that nothing is neutral. Yeah. There's a difference. Like when I, and I, and I can tell you, like when I get onto smooth roads for a longer than five minutes, oh, wow. I mean, I think differently. Mm-hmm. I feel differently. And so, um, we're not trying to smooth out every bump, but I'm trying to say to you that every, nothing is neutral, including the ground you walk on. It, it is shaping you. And so if you're the ground pourer, understand that you will be shaping other people by pouring the concrete on the ground. You know, even if you never get to see how you're shaping them. So you better think about it. You know, you, you, you don't want to be lazy in patchwork because um, <laughs> you have low character or something and uh, no vision. Um, yeah, I mean, it's almost, you know, it's like the the work when we make the work. It's almost this like threshold space mm-hmm. between all of our process that led up to it, and then everything that it will live to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding the 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 entire continuum of that space, um, that what the work will be is not detached from the process that went into it. Um, that the effect it has on people is not going to you know it's always going to have some impact. Um, based on all these things you're talking about, whether yeah. or not there are certain ideas built into it. And I think there's, you know, we, we, we say things like, um, you know, conscientious or well thought out yep. or, you know, um, you know, planned or wh- whatever you, word you might use to describe it. Sure. But there's something about, you know, understanding the totality and the holisticness of a work not as a thing you have to just get done right? or not just as a thing that you hope is in a museum one day. That's right. But that there's a totality to yeah. it. To get in the museum is to skip the whole life in between. Right. I mean, yeah. it's almost like saying, you know, hey, you know, one day I just really want to just a rip in gravestone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Just to be there yeah. for people to, to look at. To work for that in excess and neglect to everything else is, is, a, is like a greek tragedy or something. yeah yeah really yeah yeah and there's and it also like just negates all of the the beautiful positive things before that right mm-hmm. all the uh the experiences and the edification that can go on yeah prior to those stages yep. um because yeah i mean like it's great uh you know I, I live a few blocks from a very historic church uh here in richmond um that has like you know a, a graveyard from like the 1600s yeah you know totally. and it's cool to go in there and yeah. see this yeah, stuff. yeah 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 um but when I go there, like with my kids walking around with my daughter, we always turn the conversation to, what do you think their life was like? Yeah. What, like, what did they yeah, do? Yeah. What was, how would they have lived? Yeah. What would have been? There was a story that was more than just that object stuck in the ground. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's just a very, very insufficient signifier of a much more nuanced and complex organic reality. Right. Cause there's yeah. a reality that, that for that thing to be stuck in the ground, for somebody to care about it being stuck in the ground, there's something leading up to it. Yeah. Right? right. So that that piece on the wall that someone has purchased to put in their home that you've given as a gift that lives in a gallery, museum, whatever it may be, um, that a client has requested and kept and wanted yeah. to use over and over again. Like those things, there's some there's something behind those. If yeah. those are there and those are the things that got you interested and 
uh, invested in doing this as your life's practice. Yeah. Um, there's probably a lot more that went into those. And so it is worth kind of taking the time to think about, right. Like, what does that mean for my specific studio practice yeah. down to the granular yeah. that we've been talking or about? Or also like what are, what are past experiences that are shaping your studio practice that you're not cognizant of? Like for instance, Whew, that's tough. Um, goofy example. I'll stay with the ground kind of thing. But um, when I was 19, I worked at Burger King and uh, while doing college athletics. And uh, I used to have to sweep the front when the store closed. And in some ways, I didn't really know how to sweep. So I remember learning how to use a push broom. Here's the thing. like I learned how to use a push broom and and, um, to comfort myself in the uncomfortableness of awkwardly learning something like wiping down a table and, and using a push broom. I wasn't taught that as simple as that is, is, uh, you know, I had to, I thought about the karate kid. So nice art and life kind of pressing on each other. Right. So, um, but something about wiping down tables and pushing a push broom anticipated wiping down my palate and pushing a brush around as a painter. Uh-huh something very, very similar, including the clumsiness of not knowing how to do it to moving into and seeing the results and the ordinary, the mundane, the the mundaneness of it, you know, like that, Hey, in like an hour, it's going to get dirty again, or Hey, tomorrow morning, it's going to, I'm going to have to do this again as if it never happened. And it, it set up an orientation to, uh, towards those kinds of rhythms that helped to build into my character, the capacity to steward a studio practice. Well, you see what I'm saying? Like to mm-hmm. actually steward yeah. the work of making the work because you're it's, it's in those fluctuating states. Um, and so the idea that at 19 I was by, by tending to what was most in front of me, I was also uh, respectful and responsive to what was being asked of me. And I couldn't see any end in sight other than the most immediate one. And I'm pulling a karate kid here and saying like, just like the movie itself, like which I use this movie as a, teaching tool in my classes but um but but truly though it actually i can go back and uh locate a temporal state in my emotional self that is utterly reverberates with that 19 year old me the self-understanding that that trans trans lowercase transcends through time um and uh continues to allow me to be more situated in future experiences. Um, and, and then the idea is that can I pass some of that down more intensely and clear, clearly to my children so that they don't have to wait till they're 19 uh-huh. to get to the, the business of cultivating their character. You see like some multi-generational, um, character formation, culture formation, art practice making, um, they kind of spiral forward in meaningful ways. Um, and so I just wonder if people listening or I don't know, maybe it sounds a little cheesy, but that's just an example that came to my mind, just like sitting here having myself in this headspace. And uh, I mean, I think I've heard a lot of artist talks in my day mm-hmm. and you often hear references to childhood. Most people, oh, they, yeah. they go far enough back and it's like you, you wonder all the way through though, you know, like you wonder all the way through, not just childhood, but like, you know, what were some of those menial tasks that actually were cultivating something in you for better or worse? Cause again, if not all things are neutral, not all things are for your best. Um, 
whether you have a category for that or not, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder how many people's studio practices are shaped by these prior experiences that they're, they're pre-conscious about. Uh, they're not really fully cognizant of, but the thing, okay, so let me just say this. Let me double down. Here's what I mean. The world's not neutral because I had a low value for sweeping the floor, but it had more power than my low value such that I'm talking about it still. Yeah, that's true. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's no way to assess the value of that. And if that's true of sweeping the floor at (laughs) Burger King smelling like whoppers, Mm -hmm. then how much truer is that of every other experience we have? Yeah. Which if we're an anxious culture is very overwhelming, which is why we try to desensitize, curate and control our lives through technology. And it eviscerates, you know, some aspect of our humanity. Well, you use that word stewardship. And I think that's one of those words that people have a general knowledge of, but it's also something that's uh, outmoded enough in some ways that people are like, uh, what? Right. But you know, uh, when I talk to people about stewardship, they're like, oh yeah, I take good care of that. It's like, well, no, it's not, that's not really it. Yeah. You know, so some people might even be like, oh, well, you mean like that, that steward of Gondor and Lord of the Rings yeah. who just had to sit on the throne until the real king came yeah. back and he was just like Biden time. It's like, right. no, that's not really it either. Like that idea of stewardship, I think goes much more into, it's, it's a daily practice. Yeah. You know, it's not a, I can neglect it for a while and come back and the, the overall sum is positive. Sure. Um, it's much more, um, like when I use uh, examples with um, artists or students I'm talking to about things, I, I always, much to a lot of people's chagrin, uh, equate the arts and farming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk a lot about gardens, right, and cultivating gardens. Um, and I say, um, you know, if, if I were to tell you that a farmer's job is to uh, deliver food to a grocery store, would that be fair? And most students are like, well, I mean, kind of. But no, I was like, yeah, if I were to tell you a, a farmer's job was to, to plow the earth, would that be fair? Well, yeah, but not really. Yeah, yeah, a farmer's job encompasses a lot of different things, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, clearing the land and taking out the rocks and plowing it and amending the soil and planting and tending and all this yeah. sort of stuff. There are so many tasks that go into the simple act of like eating an ear of corn at like a summer cookout. Yeah. So much goes into that. Yeah. Which is, I think, a perfect parallel right. for, the, for art and design. Right. Um, but there is also a thing where, like, every day that that farmer's got to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he or she has to say, you know, that's the dwelling. Away. I mean, goodness, a farmer dwells richly in a place, and they don't. They maybe they don't go very far radius wise, but the depth of their work goes very far. But they've also got those days where they just have to say, you know, screw the way I feel. Yeah. You know, like this is yep. the work. The stewardship right. is in the day and yeah, the yeah, day yeah. out. It's the mundane. And this is, I think that's where, um, uh, you know, maybe this has come a full circle, kind of how we started the conversation. But I think that can be really the hardest part of a lot of studio practice. Like I was talking about that when the clients are there, it's great. But when mm. the clients aren't there, if I'm in between them, what do I, what do I do personally? Yeah. yeah asking yeah. the question, what do I do? Right. Um, but then also if you're, you know, if you're in a, in a space where maybe you just finished up a, a solo or a group show, like how do you get started again? How do you show up? How do you not take the, you know, the four month yeah. vacation and then say, Oh, I, yeah, I yeah, need yeah. to get to work. Right. How right. do you not have this frenetic lifestyle in your studio? And I think, I mean, 
you know, I don't know, call me old fashioned or whatever, but I think a lot of it has to do with just stewardship. It's yeah. It's kind of yeah, showing yeah. up every day. Right. That's the responsibility piece. Yeah. It's, it's, you, you know, responsibility learning is good when you're learning with things you really care for. Um, and then there's something for taking responsibility for things that you don't personally care for, but you know, matter to someone. Yeah. And so that's why sometimes we incentivize with jobs. But so if you can get to the place where you're a responsible taking person, you're probably going to make, uh, enduring work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, and I think, you know, kind of to, to wrap up in some ways for this episode, I think, um, kind of a question that I'm just kind of posing mainly to myself, but also, you know, who else is listening as a, as a rhetorical device is almost like, what does it look like for me to do that in my studio practice this year? You know, cause it's not one of those things where she's like, okay, showing up on Monday, going to be responsible. Gonna I got be my ha- steward. I got my ham sandwich, my provolone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I got my, my lunch box and my cooler yeah. and I'm uh, going to, go into my studio and do my work. And when the whistle yeah. blows, I'm going to slide down that brontosaurus tail and hop into my foot powered car and get back home. <laughs> Flintstones. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, uh, but couple, there's some real practices in there that sure. have to go into place. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think uh, a couple of things, I think that's worth, worth asking. And I, a couple anecdotal, like I think it's worth looking at an inspiration board. I mean, I have my little, Oh yeah. Little bits. Uh, I'm inspired by the, I'm inspired by authors. So I read a lot. So for me, that's like, you know, like you, like, Books are important to me. I, I think it's worth reading a book this year if you don't read. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, I would I would get involved uh, with a physical book and read it. Uh, Maybe even read it with other people. Yeah, read it with other folks. Uh, ask questions. Like get curious. Cultivate curiosity uh, as a practice. I think uh, curiosity is really important. If you're overly curious, then cultivate um, answering questions. Yeah, be microscopic. Yeah, if you're, it depends on where you're at, right? Know know yourself. Ask some friends what kind of person you are. If you don't know, I think is is helpful. Uh, if you're overly analytical, uh, go dance. Yeah, for real. Go be intuitive. Yeah, if go play a board game with a little kid. Yeah, if you're intuitive, uh, to a fault, then sit down and get analytical with someone. Um, cultivate the places where where maybe you understand yourself to be a we- weaker or less dominant in that area. Um, uh, you know, if you don't, I think everybody should own a piece of art. So if you haven't, go buy a piece of art, whether it's ten dollars, twenty dollars, sixty dollars, five hundred dollars, a thousand, whatever, wherever your station in life is, buy something uh, this year that um, is made by someone uh, more directly to you in the sense that it's not uh, from Target off the assembly line. I'm not saying that's where people shop. I'm just saying the difference right. between, of course, everything is made by someone in some way, mm-hmm. but buy something a little more, um, you know, buy a work of art by someone who made it, Yeah, you know, uh, that you can have assurance about and let it live in your home. Mm-hmm. See, see, what it, see what it does. I'm sure a lot of our listeners already do that, but if you don't, it's worth it. Um, and uh, you can't know until you test the waters to find out. So, um, you know, if you're a designer, buy something tactile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're, a, you know, if you're a visual artist, f- find some friends that are more in the design camp and, and have a conversation replete with maybe some friction. Uh, s- try to um, try to answer questions and, and, and think thoughtfully through the lens of someone who's really different than you. Yeah. Don't be threatened by it, mm-hmm. even if they're threatening, you know, in in terms of even if they feel threatening in terms of the fact that like, I'm, I guess I'm keenly thinking about people in my life that just have no value for abstract painting. 
And that feels very nerve wracking, but maybe take on it the challenge of talking with someone and understanding why they, they think that and see if you can take it to task to tweak their perception, you know, um, hold yourself accountable. Uh, see, see what, see what fruit comes from it, you know, mm-hmm. see what happens and think about it. I don't know. Just some new year's thoughts. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, just in closing the, the thing with new year's is we tend to make these resolutions, these kind of big picture things. Uh, and we don't get kind of, um, small scale of things, right. Yeah. You know, nobody's new year's resolution is this year. I'm going to read a book. Yeah. You know, it might be this year I'm going to read 80 books or something ridiculous that we right. can't, we can't do, but you know, do those, do those small things that actually do make a big impact. Yeah. Um, you know, let, let 2020 be a year that you actually do grow, but do it in small, meaningful ways, ways yeah. that show stewardship. Dose it out. Cause I mean, your studio practice, unless you're just totally lying to yourself, um, anybody's studio practice can always improve. Yeah. Always do something. If I throw one last one in there, surprise yourself. So, uh, this is totally me and dumb, but uh, one time I was frustrated at the painting and I just I, I threw a cheeseburger at it. <laughs> I really did. And it was the most unpredictable thing that I could do in that moment because I was stuck and I was enjoying that burger too much. And I almost laughed at myself, but I, I it, was, it was an aggressive act, but it was coming from a more playful place, but it was like aggressive too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a long time ago, but it was a singular act <laughs> that was just for me. Yeah. But it, <laughs> it helped. The way the burger hit the paint, the thud, <laughs> the way it fell, and then, and then just being like, I just did that. Like every now and then, I think there's like things you can do that are like safe that are just like, I just did that. Mm-hmm. I get... There should be, I guess, like what I would want to leave with is what I mean by that is play should be infused into work, into studio practice, into the new year. And the practice of surprising yourself will help you prepare for new knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think that's perfect. Yeah, because I think we do need to, to understand that it's not either play or work, but the two actually work really well together. That's right. Yeah, so plurk. <laughs> I call it plurk. <laughs> so on how's that it, note, how's it plurking? <laughs> so on that note, uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, love our audience, y'all are fantastic. Um, please Thank check us out online wherever yeah. uh, wherever you know you can find us. Instagram on our website wherever. Patron. <laughs> yeah, Patreon as always. Uh, it's fantastic. But uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, non-profit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.